welcome to today's episode of The Enthusiasm Co. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Sasha Judd, who um, is a CEO working primarily in the tech and startup world, but she also talks a lot about fandoms and fans. Um, I'm obviously much more proficient um, and familiar with one of those worlds than the other. I will leave it up to you to decide which one. Um, But I had the pleasure of talking to Sasha about both today, and not only talking about them both, but how the two of them intersect for her, because um, I was introduced to her work by um, a tweet the other day and immediately fell down a deep rabbit hole of her work because I just think the way that she tells a story between the two and the kind of interplay between them is just absolutely fascinating and a way I'd never thought about um, before how she relates fandoms to diversity and making sure that we have more diverse culture especially in tech but in startups and business more generally I just found fascinating. Um, Two things to note on this this recording is totally unedited it was just the free flow conversation that we had that is how much of a master of her craft Sasha is Um, and also second caveat um even as somebody whose entire brand is enthusiasm i am mortified by just how gushy i was um i don't take any of it back it wasn't inauthentic it is just mildly mortifying to hear so um i hope you enjoy the episode as much as i clearly did recording it enjoy hi sasha hi hello thank you so much for coming on the podcast and i think being my first uh, international guest so thank you very much for taking that mantle oh my pleasure um how are you doing in lovely is it sunny new zealand i was gonna say sunny i'm assuming it is don't know why uh we're heading into winter now being in the southern of the hemispheres but um it's it's pretty good we're very fortunate down here at the moment to um have managed to get the virus under control and so i think we're enjoying a level of um freedom in our restrictions that maybe isn't true everywhere so i feel pretty blessed yeah i think that's a that's a sunny in disposition if not in in weather then exactly (laughs) um Could you please just, I would like to preface this by saying that I have sent you many an earnest email this past week because I am almost unhealthily obsessed with your work. I just think what you do is brilliant. I was like raving to my, I had to ring my mum to ask her to give me a pep talk before I came on to you just because (laughs) I like, you've made me think about the world in ways that have never connected before. And now I feel like I can see things in colour, which sounds so stupid, but like really, I just, I've only known about your work for a week, but it's been the best week of my life. Awesome. Um, so could you just tell people, please, kind of what, what you do, I guess? Sure. Um, my background is pretty traditional. I was a lawyer in a corporate law firm for 20 years, and um, I did pretty complex corporate finance deals. Uh, but in my spare time, ever since I was a child, I have been really into um, online fandoms and communities. And for a long time that was something that i felt like i had to keep to myself so um, i think we first got the computer uh, at home when i was about 10. i was lucky enough to have a computer back then and uh, i won't reveal my age by telling you what kind of computer (laughs) Um, and when we uh, we got the internet when it first became available in new zealand which was in the early 90s and my first experiences of going online was um as everyone does looking for people who were into the same things that I was and at that stage it was a lot of television and books and um, I really quickly discovered these communities of people who weren't just watching tv shows but were then um, talking about them obsessively cataloging little details and then creating their own work writing stories about the shows um, creating art about the shows and so I, I fell pretty headfirst into transformative fandom um, really early on 
and I stayed there um, throughout my adult life. But I, I was always taught, I think, as we all were, that some hobbies are not for discussing in public. Um, yeah. And nerdy internet hobbies would be chief among them. Um, and so I just never really talked about it. It was just something I did in my spare time. And um, I think in my later years, as I started to think differently about my career, um, I realized that keeping all of this sort of uh, passion to yourself is just crazy. Like, why are the things that some people into considered acceptable to chat about uh, around the water cooler at work and some things are not? And so um, when I change jobs, I'm now running a family office, which um, gives me a lot more freedom um, to do my own thinking and writing and speaking at conferences and so on. I started to think about how those passions and enthusiasms that we all have um, come to intersect, I guess, with our workplaces. And so the last couple of years, I have been um, lucky enough to be invited to speak at a number of conferences, primarily in the technology sector, around how we build great companies. And a big part of my thinking around that is drawing inspiration from those online fan communities. Which it just, I think, is so... It's such a brilliant bridge because, I mean, when you have a, a like pitch deck, a slide deck, sorry, that has a picture of Harry Styles and I'm pretty sold on the talk anyway, regardless of what the <laughs> content is. However, um, the way that you blend the two topics together is just like masterful storytelling, which I absolutely love. And so I think to... Um, kind of initiate people with your work I think let's usually when I interview people on this podcast I ask them about work first but I think I'm going to flip it on its head if that's right with you and kind of tease out more about that play element because for for that what you said is that fans and fandoms and I think it's really interesting actually just that you said that um kind of you went on the internet to find people who like the same things as you because have you read Because Internet by Gretchen McCulloch I have yes yeah so what I what I loved in that what I found really interesting was that she said like kind of generationally some people went on the internet to find people that weren't who they like live near um, Mm -hmm. and to find fandoms whereas I was kind of the the second part of that I was the people I was in the generation of people who went online to find the people they already knew and so I think it's really fascinating um the journey you've kind of had from the start like when you were showing um kind of your original x-files chats and stuff I just found it so fascinating um but obviously we do share the one direction fandom um sure (laughs) yeah so this is I, I guess this was the first sort of major um piece of work that I did and it came about in a really organic way um I really like online conspiracy theories, the fun kind, not the toxic QAnon <laughs> kind. Um, but I really like the way that people can get re- go down really deep rabbit holes on the internet about really unusual topics. And I'm really attracted to that sort of um, obsessive behavior. And um, many, many years ago, I stumbled across this online conspiracy theory that held that two of the band members of One Direction had been involved in a secret closeted gay relationship since the band was formed. And um, and I sort of, I read all the material around this with that kind of wry cynicism that you do when you come across something delightful and, and clearly, <laughs> um, you know, pretty obscure. Uh, and But I was just really struck by um, how into it these fans were who believed this uh, slightly crazy idea. And, um, and I started talking about it to a lot of my friends because I enthused about things. And one of the things that I noticed really quickly is that the more I talked about One Direction, and this is, I mean, this is going back, you know, five years now, um, when they were slightly more relevant, I guess the conversation would be something like BTS at this stage. Uh, yeah. But but what I encountered was just this sort of um, 
immediate pushback from from friends and family and so on who were like you're not really into this band that you keep talking about are you and of course I wasn't I didn't I couldn't have told them apart I didn't know anything about them or their music (laughs) but I was so annoyed by that uh, knee-jerk response that I got from people that um that it wasn't a serious topic simply because of the band and who they were and who their fans were um that I just began to really double down and it it became a part of my online identity for a while. I just, um, you know, constantly spoke in One Direction gifts and uh, was generally annoying about One Direction. Um, and it, I just started to think more and more about why we do that, why we dismiss the things that particularly young women get excited about. And um, that's, as I say in the talk, that's certainly not a new phenomenon. You know, you can go right back and read all sorts of commentary at the time of the Beatles about how those fans were dismissed as being hysterical and um, and obsessed and crazy and all of these words that we apply to young women um, and not to young men who follow their favourite sports teams around. And that double standard just really started to drive me crazy. Uh, and at the same time... Um, while I was hanging out in One Direction communities to find pictures to troll my friends with, um, <laughs> I, I started to realize that this was sort of the modern iteration of, of the fan communities that I knew and was familiar with and had been part of for years. And so I was watching them write, you know, hundreds of thousands of words of fan fiction, fully wrought novels, creating this incredible digital art um, and doing really technical things. They were cutting video better than most post-production specialists. They were teaching each other how to make GIFs. They were teaching each other bits of like code snippets to make Tumblr do what they wanted to. And they were um, they were on a path to a career in technology and they didn't know it. Uh, they didn't take their skills seriously because they'd been taught that what they were doing was frivolous and um, in service of something that we just don't care about. Uh, and so that really started to frustrate me because at the same time in my more professional day-to-day life, I was working alongside um, tech founders building companies and constantly hounding them about hiring more diverse teams. And the argument at the time, I think we've got better about that conversation, but the argument five years ago was, well, we've got a pipeline problem, you know, like we just can't find great yeah. young women, um, we can't find young coders of color. We can't find queer coders. It's like, we and weren't were looking. Like, Let me introduce me to this website called Tumblr. I really yeah. think you'll find your pool. But... <laughs> we weren't looking. And, and part of that was just around a sort of a hiring mentality that said, uh, I'll look for people who are like me, um, who have followed the same journey that I followed. And, and you know, I had a great conversation with a, a white male founder who was like you know what I'm looking for and he, he wasn't being malicious about this but he was like what I'm looking for is is someone who's been you know hacking around on computers since they were a teenager maybe built an app in their spare time they've done this they've done that they've got a bit of a computer science degree even if they haven't finished it and I was like why that's your journey like that, mm. that's not telling you anything except that you're going to hire someone else who's like you and so yeah that's where it started and from there I think I've just moved into thinking more about not just how we hire diversely, but then how we create workplaces that um, are inclusive so that as soon as you hire diversely, those people don't want to leave. <laughs> um, and so that's about building great company culture and about thinking about how we um, how we create an inclusive workplace. And then more recently, I've been thinking about 
um, a sort of obligation we have as we build these new companies and these new platforms and technologies to think about a really the diverse community that's going to use them and how they might be misused against them and some of the more thorny ethical issues that we've started to grapple with as this sector comes of age. Yeah, because I think it's there's. I mean, I would just like to also say that I think so many to like non fandom immersed people. I think like the the journey to kind of starting in the depths of Tumblr and then coming out like with this um, journey, I think might seem quite alien. But there's a tweet going around. I don't know if you saw it, but it said something like, you know, I joined Twitter so that I could just tweet Niall Horan, and now I want to defund the police. Like I think a lot <laughs> of people have found really strong activism in those kind of communities. I think that's true. And I think, uh, you know, the, the Tumblr generation gets a lot of flack for, um, you know, in, in the past, I think, criticism leveled at um, those communities for being extra woke or extra political. Um, but that, that is where a lot of people are cutting their political teeth, are learning about social justice for the first time um, and, you know, in healthy and unhealthy ways. But I think it has had an enormous um, effect in terms of spreading some of those ideas, connecting young people with concepts that they may not have come across before. Yeah, and also not not even not just ideologically, but also technologically, as you say, because one of the other things you mentioned in the talk that I was specifically referencing at the start was the Norwegian um, TV show Scarm. Mm-hmm. Is that how you pronounce it? Scarm. Yes, I think so. Um, yes, my my Norwegian's not excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I was well, well. I mean, let's just go with that. Um, but I was fascinated by that because I've not heard of that. Um, hmm. And. Could you just talk a bit about that? Obviously, I mean, if you want to perform the full four series of it, you can do right now. But just <laughs> give a brief overview of what, what that was and why it was so seismic. Yeah, I think it's just a great example of the power of um, online fandom. Um, Scam was a TV show that was produced by NRK, um, Norway's public broadcaster. And it's it's a teen TV show. It's a, it's a show that over four seasons followed the lives of a group of teenagers in a high school in Oslo. And... Um, I mean, it's a great show. I loved it, but it's not a show that I necessarily would have come across. But what happened was um, that the fans started to share, as they do a lot of the material on Tumblr, gifts of the show, um, clips and so on. And um, because it had a really diverse cast, I think, and it had a central gay couple, um, those kinds of pieces of representation are um, unfortunately still too infrequent and so when they're shared people are like oh what is this you know and so international fans started to pay attention Norwegian fans then started to um, translate the episodes so they would crowdsource transcripts of episodes so that um, the text was available in English and then eventually produced subtitle files so that you could download the show and have the English subtitles all at a time at which the broadcaster was not making the show available internationally. So, you know, a, a legal gray area, shall we say. <laughs> um, and, but but the, the international popularity of the show just skyrocketed. Um, it, it developed an enormous international fan base. And um, so much so that, that um, there are now versions of that show being made in six other countries because broadcasters are like, wow, this is clearly a formula that works. <laughs> um, but it's just an example of that kind of community coming together and sharing something that they love and, um, and you know, the enormous popularity that can result. And what an interesting format for the TV show as well, because it was it kind of premiered on a website, didn't it? Or it went in real time and you could see texts and stuff as well. And there wasn't like a set release time. Is that right? So That's right. 
what reminded me of it was when you said about like you know the the white male founder um saying that he wanted somebody who's built an app but you know fans of the show built an app didn't they so that they could scrape the site every hour or whatever to, to tell people when a new upload was on that's right the the show episode would be released in clips during the week and um and you never knew when new content was going to be added to the site so some fans as you say, build an app um, that would send them notifications. So when they were in school, they knew that there was a new clip on the website. And um, so, yeah, just an enormous amount of technical creativity um, and, and, you know, application of like real skills to something that um, because we don't find the subject matter to be serious, I don't think we take the work seriously. Yes. And that is an excellent segue into the inner workings of your mind, because I just love the, the way that you've not compared but put the two these two things together in your work so because as you say you're kind of like your your project and focus is at the moment foci I guess at the moment uh um kind of tackling the ethical issues that the tech industry is facing and kind of work out how to make that industry more diverse um and how did you kind of because did you do law originally is that I did, yeah. Um, yeah, I was a lawyer for, for a long time. And in the last few years of my career, I started to build a practice working with tech startups. Um, it was a growth area. I had a lot of friends who were software developers who were starting to build their own companies um, and who needed a lawyer. And uh, so it just sort of, it became a bit of a natural fit. We spoke the same language, but I was able to translate it then into legalese. Um, and so I, I started working um, predominantly with founders of, of startup companies, very small companies on their growth path and helping them raise capital and so on. Uh, and so almost immediately I was struck by um, the lack of diversity in the industry um, and how often these young teams were being put together because it was a bunch of mates who had decided to tackle a problem. Um, and so the first, the first few people who come together to work on something are friends usually. And um, and then they managed to maybe get a bit of money from friends and family to see if this is going to turn into a thing. And so they're sort of begging people to do work at discounted rates and so on. So it's usually people they know. And so founding teams tend to be from a very small circle. And at the point that they actually start to look outwards to hire, um, they've managed to raise some money from investors and they can actually start paying people properly. Sometimes the culture is already really bedded in at that point. You know, there might be already 10 white guys and a dog on the founding team. And it's it's hard to change the culture at that point. And the problem is many of the early decisions you make when you're building a product um, can be ones that are really negative to minoritized groups. And so if you don't have any voices around the table who are thinking differently, who are um, raising concerns about how a product might be used or misused, who are just pointing out your blind spots, then yeah. you can actually wind up pretty far down a path which is terrible without even meaning to. Um, and so my focus has been to, to try and get people thinking about these things really early on. Like it's not enough to say, oh, we're going to build this company and if it turns out to look like it might be successful, then we'll hire a you know head of diversity or then we'll start to think about um, you know, making sure that our team is inclusive. Those decisions have to be right from the start. They have to be baked into the product. Um, you have to be thinking about it from day one. And um, and so that's, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. It's hard work. 
um, and the, the criticism or the pushback I get most often is that in those early days when you don't have very much money and you're just trying to prove whether an idea is going to work or not, you have to move very fast. Um, yeah. It's a classic sort of Facebook mantra, move fast and break things. <laughs> and it turns out mostly they just broke things. Um, but that's, that's, and, and it is uh, slower and it involves more friction to build a diverse and inclusive team. But it turns out all of the research shows that that's important, that that extra time, that extra friction means that you are turning out a product or building a company that is going to be wildly more successful in the long run. Yeah, because I, I was going to, you've preempted my next question, which is going to be considering what you said previously about kind of um, younger founders. Um, have you found more pushback from comparatively, you know, from younger founders kind of when you have said this is what you need to be doing? Have you found more pushback from younger founders or have you found that as they are generally of the, in inverted commas, more super woke generation, that they're more open to it from, from the off? Um, I think... One of the advantages that this sector has is that um, it is a little bit younger and it is open to uh, new ideas, or at least it purports to be. Some of the evidence suggests that it's, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> uh, I think one of the problems is um, if we're talking about the stereotypical tech company founder historically, I mean, some of these guys are now, you know, in their 40s, um, because they've been at it for a while. But if we're talking about that stereotypical founder, they were often someone who um, had not considered themselves to be part of the majority all the way through high school. You know, like if you're talking about the classic kind of computer nerd who makes good. And so if you start to say to them that what they're doing is actually quite oppressive, they don't respond well to that criticism <laughs> because they don't think of themselves as being someone who has held power historically Um, and of course now they hold enormous power and enormous wealth and influence and I I think it's um, what's been difficult is kind of challenging on them on that and going you know what you're not the underdog Um, you're what you're building is significant and you're not taking into account the ways in which you're making life harder for other people Um, I think the thing that gives me hope about it is that they're also really data-driven and so when you can start to show them the hard science, and there's an enormous amount of hard science now, um, that diverse teams um, do better, they outperform um, other companies financially, they outperform them on almost every metric, uh, and that all of the studies around workplace culture show that diverse teams are more effective, um, they're more loyal to the company, they help you to hire because they're passionate about the company they work for, and they just produce better work product. Um, they're smarter. The science shows you that diverse teams are, are smarter. They reach the right conclusion more often. Um, so, you know, when you start to actually hit them with science, I find that most people are then quite engaged. Um, the pushback continues because it's hard. It's hard work. Yeah. Um, if you want to, if you're g- genuinely committed to this, you need to spend money on it. You need to um, have real targets that you are accountable to in the same way that you have financial targets and no one wants that accountability. And <laughs> you, have to, you have to do the work of going out to look for candidates in communities that you're not necessarily connected with and prove your bona fides so that those sorts of people want to come and work with you. Um, and it's, it's ongoing. And so I think, unfortunately, there's 
that's where the pushback still comes from. It's like, but it's going to be difficult. So yeah, it is. But this is an industry that has dedicated itself to solving hard problems. So, you know, what's your excuse? Yeah, that's so true. Also, this has made me realise that I just have no idea what tech actually means. Like, oh, uh, look, like nobody does. Founders, <laughs> some of the founders are like 40 plus. Like, I knew that. Like, logically, yeah. I knew that. When you said that, I was like, no, they're all like 25. They've just come out from Stanford University. Oh, yeah, in 2001, Ellie. Yeah, that was yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, look, tech is an enormous misnomer. It's like technology is in everything we touch. So to describe it as a as a sector or an industry, I think is also a little bit challenging it's it's I mean technology is everywhere trying to define the edges of that but but I use it as a shorthand to mean the kind of new companies we have built in the last 20 years um and and they they kind of follow a model of trying to do things different than the big corporate enterprise and some of those um things have been successful and some of them have been extraordinarily unsuccessful and I think so much (laughs) of those companies um ideology was around not being a big fat corporate you know it's like we're going to be lean and we're going to have a flat hierarchy and we don't need an HR department because that's for boring old suits and um, all of those things have contributed to um, making life much more difficult for women and minoritized groups in those companies. It's weirdly become a bit of a self self self-fulfilling prophecy hasn't it like trying to get trying to not be like kind of the startups of generations yeah. gone by and they've ended up being their own brand and breed of startups that have quite a similar like outlet that's right they're, they're their own kind of terrible way, I think. <laughs> and it's uh, you know it's that reticence um to um follow down a path of of what it means to be a boring old grown-up company but it turns out that some of the things that we have in boring old grown-up companies serve a real purpose and um and i think there's oftentimes people just overlook um the effect because it's a blind spot that they haven't themselves experienced so one of the um traits that some of these young companies adopted early on i think it's it's sort of passed now thank god but was humorous business titles so right. you know if you if you worked at one of these companies you weren't the cfo you were the i don't know chief dollar counter or whatever but mm-hmm. um but giving people names like i'm the head firefighter instead of describing what it was that they actually did and you know that sort of seems fun like oh we're a fun workplace with a ball pit until you think about what it means to be someone from an underrepresented group working at one of these companies and then having to present credibly to the outside world. So you're going to a conference at which you're already a minority in the room. You're already trying to establish yourself as a credible voice. And people say, you know, who are you and where are you from? And you have to say that you're the chief firefighter from, you know, whatever.com. Um, those you know people people need a title that conveys the respect and the credibility that they that they should have right and so it's just a it's a classic example of something that um, seems really fun when you're a straight white guy who doesn't have to um, do the extra work to be listened to Uh, it's not fun if you don't fall into that category sure yeah because you're you're then the joke you're not in on the joke you're you're just out the butt of the joke aren't you that's that makes right so much sense yeah, yeah. so there's, there's lots of things like that i think where um the intention wasn't necessarily malicious it's like we're going to do things in a new and interesting and innovative way but without stopping to listen to voices that um, weren't necessarily around the table at the beginning without stopping to think about the impact that it was having on people who didn't look like them god that's just 
blowing my mind. <laughs> um, and this leads on very nicely to um, kind of the third enthusiasm. So that's um, a caveat, like enthusiasm in life, just because I personally have a real issue with hobbies. Like I don't have any and therefore resent anyone that does have any successful <laughs> hobbies. So which is why I caveat it as like life rather than what do you do extracurricularly. Um, but the your kind of commitment to diversifying workplaces and kind of solving these tech issues it's it goes beyond just the hiring process doesn't it because I think that's what a lot of people get stuck on maybe stuck on isn't the right word because it is exceptionally important but also it's about kind of making those commitments run through into everyday work practice as well isn't it kind of with what you were saying thinking about not only the title on the contract that the new employee will sign but kind of how they're presenting to their colleagues and to their peers as well um yeah that's right and I think that came about I mean that was a personal evolution for me when I first started doing this work I was really focused on hiring because that's what everyone told me the problem was it's like oh well, we just don't have a pipeline of diverse candidates so that's why we can't create a diverse company um, and after a while, I realized that that wasn't necessarily true. I mean, it's, it's true in part, but the problem is you can have a great range of diverse candidates and great hiring practices, but if your workplace culture sucks, then you're not going to be able to hire or re retain those people. And, mm. um, and so if, if you think about the way in which some of these companies were built, and as I say, the fact that culture bids in quite early, you find all of these practices become um, standard without meaning to. So, you know, you have a, a Friday drinks culture that's built around craft beer and you don't give any consideration to what that means for people who don't drink or who can't stand craft beer or who would rather go home to their family on a Friday afternoon. Um, and so just thinking differently about what it means to have an inclusive workplace and to build teams that um, where people don't feel like they have to change to fit in. So if you feel like there's kind of a sense of humor that's accepted, that um, people are into certain kinds of ways of dressing, for example, you know, everyone comes to the office in jeans and hoodies, um, all of those things work to create an environment where you feel like you need to be a certain way. And I guess the overlap for me with the with the fandoms and the passions and the enthusiasms is do you feel like you can come to work and talk about the things that get you excited? And yes. in most of the workplaces I've been in my life, the answer to that is a solid no. <laughs> you can <laughs> you can come to work and talk about the sports game that was played on the weekend, um, but that's about it. And so trying to think about what that means, like what does it mean to create a workplace where everybody feels like they can come to work and be themselves. And it, that's a phrase that's thrown around so often, bring your whole mm. self to work. Um, you know, we're, we're a workplace where you can bring your whole self. And it's like, what, is that, what does that mean in practice? And I, I, I think, think often it's, it's conflated into being like, bring your, bring your whole effort to work, isn't it? As in like, make sure that you're putting in 100%. I think that gets conflated a lot when actually, as you say, it's so much deeper than just like your output. Yeah. And, you know, is my workplace somewhere where I feel 100% comfortable to be me? And I think for a, for a vast swathe of the population, no. <laughs> like yeah. you sort of, you put on your work clothes and you go to work and you, you put on your work personality, which means that you tone aspects of yourself down or you don't talk about things that you're into or you um, profess an enthusiasm that you just don't feel for Premier League football, whatever that looks like. But but there's definitely um, that sense that there's a certain way to be at work. And 
So, you know, trying to work out what, what impact that has. And, you know, in my work, what I discovered was um, when you want to create a diverse and inclusive team that's, that's really high performing, what you have to do is create an environment of what's called psychological safety. And that sounds like a really woo term, but it's quite <laughs> practical. What it means is, do people in your team feel safe enough to call out problems and to raise red flags and to disagree? And um, that's really basic. Like if you want to be working well and effectively, you can't have a team of people around you who just say yes to everything, right? You need a team of people who are gonna say, you know what, this, is, this doesn't work or this is going to have this kind of impact, or we need to think about this possible risk, or I don't agree that this is the right design for this, or this photography looks wrong for whatever reason, you know, but you need people who are prepared to, um, to dissent. And people are only going to dissent if they feel safe to do so, if they don't think that doing so is going to result in repercussions professionally or personally. And so I sort of, I think of the are my hobbies or passions or enthusiasms respected at work as, as a, it's a real symptom, it's an indicator, because if they're not, then all that tells me is people aren't, if, if they don't feel safe enough to talk about going to Comic-Con on the weekend, they're not going to feel safe enough to say, this is a mistake. And so I, I see it as being a, a real indicator for the health of your team. Yeah, and I think that's so key from obviously an employer's point of view um, in making sure that they have that workplace there. But also from the employee's point of view, I think a lot of people kind of who maybe don't feel like they can bring their whole self to work or just think or just kind of tell themselves like, well, you know, it's separate. Like I am me at home. I'm different me at work. Like it's fine. It's just work. But it's where we spend the majority of our lives. And you want to make sure that you really can fulfill your even if work doesn't drive you, which it doesn't drive a lot of people. And that's totally fine. Mm. You want to feel in your fulfilling you know your, your best work and also as you say it does come down to that feeling that psychological safety like whether you care about your workplace or not you care about your own mental stability and safety and that's that's where it comes in I think it's so fascinating yeah and I'm you know I'm not suggesting that you need to bring your model trains to the staff room and set them up but I, <laughs> I think that um when you create that weird division, which is like, this is my work life and this is my personal life. And it's not that like, it's healthy to keep those things separate. You know, I'm not suggesting yeah. that we should blur that boundary, but, but when you're, when you don't even feel like you can talk about it to the people who you spend most of your time around, that feels unhealthy to me. That's like, you're in an environment where you just don't feel comfortable enough. Um, and I think that that's, that's super dangerous because, as I say, that then leads to all of these other problems because you don't feel safe enough. You're not going to be the one to step out of line or to, to raise a criticism. I mean, one of the examples that I use in one of the talks is around the fashion industry and how it just keeps tripping over its own shoelaces with um, really jarring racial problems and mm. you know you see these terrible examples of models on the covers of magazines in blackface or um you know shoots with clothing which has awful um you know racist iconography on it and anytime something like this happens and a, a major fashion house has to come out and apologize everybody is always sort of saying but how did this happen like all of the people who must have been at that photo shoot or in those product discussions who saw these things at every step of the way. And all I can say is either 
there weren't a diverse group of people in the room, which is likely, and that's back to your, your hiring question. It's like, who, who is actually being hired? Or more likely, if there were, they didn't feel safe enough to say anything because they were too junior or the environment was such that they didn't feel that they could. And, and that's, you know, that's how you make terrible mistakes because you haven't created an environment um, where people are able to call you out and go, you know what, this is not okay. This needs to stop now. We need to go back to the drawing board. If you're a junior staffer on your first shoot with Condé Nast, you're not going to turn around and say, wait a minute, <laughs> this is, this is not okay because you want to keep your job. So yeah, it's about, it's about creating that environment. God, it, that is just so fascinating. I know I've said that word about 25 times. I sound like a broken record, but it really, truly has just made me just, it's been so informative. Um, so thank you so, so much. It's been, I mean, I know I said this at the start, I'm waxing lyrical now, but it's honestly been a joy to find out about your work. So to talk to you as well for 40 minutes of uninterrupted goodness was just an absolute joy. Oh, it's um, been wonderful. Can I um, just ask you to let people know where they can kind of find your work if they um, want to watch your talks or find more about you? Yeah, you can find the talks, videos and slides and, and text, uh, whichever way you'd like to consume them at my website, sashajive.com. Thank you so, so much, Sasha. It's been an absolute pleasure and have a lovely day. Well, thank you very much for listening to that episode of The Enthusiast and Co. This is the bit where I tell you where you can find me. Um, I am on Instagram at theenthusiast.co, on Facebook forward slash The Enthusiast Co and on Twitter at Eleanor Kime, uh, K-I-M-E. My website is theenthusiast.co if you're looking for my merch, any more resources or my blog um, and you can sign up to my email newsletter there as well. Thank you so much for listening. Speak to you next time.